recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Getting of Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 20th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today is the birthday of the last great Christian leader that Western civilization has seen, Adolf Hitler. He would have been 124 years old today. It's a shame we don't have more men like him. I thought about doing something for this day today and decided to skip it. I don't want people to think that I'm an Adolf Hitler worshiper. The, 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 our adversaries, our opponents often confuse us for that simply because we seek to give credit where credit is due at the same time seeking to correct the historical record and not letting our enemies get away with their lies. We will consider doing something next year on his 125th birthday. We did have a program last year commemorating his 123rd. Today I'm here to present our presentation against the Paul Bashers, Part 17, and I have Sword Brethren here to help me with that. Hello, Brian. Thank you for having me on. And I just wanted to say about Hitler, most people in the West, they... They're worse than if they had known nothing about World War II because everything they, quote, know about World War II pretty much isn't so. All the facts well, most they people know the, aren't facts. Most people in the West get their education 100% from the Jewish-controlled media, movies, video games, car, comic books, cool. um, pulp novels. That, that's where they get their education from. They, they've never, most people in the West have never read a real book. This, part, this, this is part 17 of our series addressing the Paul bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. I, I pray people aren't getting tired of this series. It, it's going to continue for some time yet because it must be presented. Here we will commence from where we left off in our last program in this series with Douglas's long article, The Seduction, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity? Saul of Tarsus, Paul, A Different View, What a Convoluted Title, which Douglas published in the, in the December 2003 issue of his Free American magazine. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, numbered 101 and 102, which were published in September and October of 2006. The October 2006 Watchman's Teaching Letter concludes our rebuttal to Douglas's first article, and the one which follows is begun in Clifton's October 2006 Watchman's Teaching Letter and continues probably through February or January, January or February of 2007. It's not as long. His second article was not as long as his first. We will begin addressing that as we commence with this, this section of our presentation. Well, you know, a title, a name says a lot, and this says a different view. Well, yes, there's the biblical view of Paul of Tarsus, and then there's the rabbinical view, and that's the one we're getting here with Clay Douglas. So when he says a different view, he doesn't say what's different about it, though. Well, well, absolutely. I, I mean, this this has been one incredible mess right from the, right from the beginning that this has been um. Uh, one, one convoluted tale which Douglas has attempted to weave, or, or which his writers, and, and as you pointed out several times, there do appear to be several different attitudes expressed 
throughout this article from several different perspectives, several different writing styles, several different um, styles of appellations, and, and, and it, it probably reflects a patch quilt work of several, several different authors. Well, at some points, they, they change the name. Sometimes you've Saul of Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, Paul the so-called apostle, Paul the self-styled apostle, you know, the Roman deserter. They just, they just change how they refer to him repeatedly, and the, the writing styles are very unique. They, they, they change from paragraph to paragraph. It's clear we're reading a work that was written more or less by a team. This wasn't the work of one individual. This wasn't from one man's pen. Probably a committee of rabbis. Well, absolutely. It, it, it's. I really do believe it's that brother Nazariah, that that wannabe Essene Jew hippie clown that that um, had, and and he's a Paul Basher, and I really do believe it's him that wrote these. I can't prove that right off, but I do believe it's him that wrote these articles, and um, probably. He, he probably drew his in, information, copied it from several other sources or whatever, but it, it definitely reflects, if not at least two or three different authors, that then surely one man of a very seriously divided mind. Well, if he's a self-styled Essene hippie, who knows what kind of drugs he's put into his body? Well, well that's very possible. He... he, he um, his website reflects that attitude wholly. It's it's like an old Jewish beatnik, it, it seems to me, who is trying to um, legitimize his hippie lifestyle by, by by stylizing himself as an Essene. And, and with that, he seems to want to live off of others and, and um, take advantage of, of, of the innocent. Let's oh. naive, let's leave it at that. I'm just getting the idea of turn in, what tune on, and drop out, or however it went. Well, well, you missed um, the last presentation against the Paul Bashers Part 16, where, where for the most part I addressed false claims made about Paul of Tarsus based upon the misinterpretations of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And um, that that was probably interesting. It, it was actually... It, it was actually downloaded quite a bit the first week it was um, posted. Here we'll continue. We're nearing the completion of Douglas's first article. I, I, I hope we do get through it tonight. Through the, through the first the, article? Yes. There's, this isn't the end? No, no there are two, there's one more article, which is a lot shorter, and it encompassed maybe three or four of Clifton's teaching letters rather than a, a dozen or so. I'm wondering... Well, how many, how many lies can you tell about Paul? How long until they start saying he was a cross-dresser, he was bisexual, he was a, a loan shark? Well, it never ends. It never ends. It never ends. It, and and it's, it gets weirder, weirder and weirder. It, it, it's, they really try to throw the kitchen sink at Paul of Tarsus in, in these oh. articles. There's no doubt. First he was a Roman deserter. In a couple of weekends we're going to find out that they're claiming he invented stand-up comedy in vaudeville. Well, well, he was the bad guy of the Dead Sea Scrolls last week, well, which is a lie, and, and it's proven to be a lie. It, it's, um, he would have had to, be, to have been alive in the days of Micah and David to be the bad guy, of the, the teacher of lies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and that's the actual context. Yet, you know, you could pick... It, it's easy to um, throw labels around 
and depend on people not really examining the substance. And that's something I also addressed last night, where I apply the label universalist, and people dismiss it as an ad hominem, or they dismiss it as a pejorative without examining the substance. When a charge is laid, it, it's the responsibility of, of anyone who wants to take one side or the other in a dispute to examine the evidence for themselves right. before making a decision. People don't do that. They, they, make, they make emotional decisions based on politics, based on feelings, based on their mood. Who, who knows half the time what they base their decisions on? And that's that. That's what drives most people. It's pretty damn sad, but that is what drives most people. Their personal situation. I found that many of the people who who have despised me for for um not only my split with Eli James, but my labeling him a universalist, and and who have clung to him. Most of those people that I have encountered and and discussed it with. Or, or have um, confronted or argued with have children or grandchildren or son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws of other races. Well, if you love your um, son or daughter, husband or wife, daughter-in-law, son-in-law more than me, you are not worthy of me. Well, well right, absolutely. And, and the Word of God, we were told that father would be divided against um, son-in-law and mother would be divided against daughter-in-law and brother would be divided against brother for the sake of the word of God. So so if you want to compromise the word of God because you have a bastard child or a bastard grandchild or a bastard son-in-law, whatever the predicament, if you want to compromise the word of God for that reason, woe to you. You're, you're just heaping more coals on your head and you're digging yourself a deeper hole. Absolutely, there's no doubt. Well, what did Christ say about spewing out of his mouth those who are lukewarm, that he would rather they be hot or cold? And, and those who are lukewarm are those who compromise the word of God. Walk away from it. Don't compromise it. You're lukewarm, and, and yet you're, yet you're worthy of a greater punishment. Well, a lot of people just vote with their own, you know, um, personal situation. That's their conscience. So if they make a living through usury and finance, we can't expect them to stand with us because we're against that. Well, well, right, absolutely. And I run into that all the time. I run into people that even people, a lot of identity Christians are willing to compromise the word of God where it affects them personally with their grandchildren, with their financial situation or, or whatever. It's, it's a shame. It's unfortunate. But it's done all the time. I've done it myself. But but in, in things that are as important as, as race mixing and and the unforgivable sin, which I believe is the promotion of race mixing, well, well, that's why they call it the unforgivable sin. It's destructive. It kills our brethren. It kills our communities. And um, all men sin, but... This is a tough one to get by. And we're told too that that was one of the, that was one of the um the great sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that not only was perversion happening, but
but most of the rest of the people were aiding and abetting it and, and stamping their approval on it, even if they weren't personally doing it. Well, well, no doubt, and that's why Paul of Tarsus says that not, not only those who um, who commit the sin are worthy of of the punishment of the law in Romans chapter one. That's what he's talking about. But those who approve of the people committing those sins. So, so in other words, if you accept a race mixer. You are worthy. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen because all Israel will be saved, but you are worthy of the death penalty which would be imposed on a race mixer. If you accept a fornicator, if you accept a, a sexual deviant, what we call them homosexuals today, right? Yet you are worthy of the same punishment because you have accepted that person's sin you have basically endorsed it you have basically put your stamp of approval on it when you accept that person when you accept a sexual deviant you're accepting that sin we're to put those people out of our community we're to put race mixers out of our community that's fornicators. Fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh. That's one form of fornication, the pursuit of strange flesh, race mixing. Now, one can be a repentant fornicator. There's no doubt it states so explicitly in Scripture. It's explicit in several places. But to repent, you have to, as Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah say, Ezra chapter 10 or chapter 9, I believe it's Ezra chapter 10, that the, the, um, the people were commanded to put away their strange wives and those who were born of them. Meaning right, the, they called the, the children of adultery? Well, well, yes, absolutely. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. And, and men are, are, are told to put away the strange wives and those who were born of them. Right. We accept bastards because it's not the bastards' fault. There are bastards. And there are some people that would want to kick the men out for mixing, but then take their um, bastard offspring, bring them into the city, and judge them by their works. Right. Well, well, Paul clearly told us that fornicators were to be put out of our community, un unless they repent, of course. But unrepentant fornicators get put out of our community. We don't make excuses for them. It's sin. It's wrong. We can't make excuses for them. We have to inform them that they must repent of their fornication. And, and then, if they repent of their fornication and we find that they have sincerely repented, then, yes, we can accept them back. We should accept them back into our community. That, that's the Christian thing to do. If thy brother does the wrong and, and says, I repent, well, well, 77 times, times 77, right? 70 times 77 times where to forgive him. So our repentant brethren, we have to take them back. But if they're not repentant, we put them away. And that includes all these people that accept that they're bastard children and they're bastard grandchildren, that they're not, they're obviously not repentant of their sin. And, and we should inform those people of that and, and explain to them what the law is and what's required of Christians. Well, I think a lot of them know. They're just, 
they've decided their own personal situation is more important. Well, well, that's exactly it, and and that's what I found. Not in all of them, but in most of the people who who have despised me these last um and, and the things I teach these last two and a half years. That is exactly why they despise me because their personal situation gets in the way. Well, I'll tell them something. I don't care how much they hate me. I don't give one whit of 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 concern about how much they hate me. I don't care if they hate. They can hate me forever. I don't matter. What they're really doing is they're hating the message and they're hating the word of God. That, for that, they will have a problem. And, and that's a damn pity. I, I don't care if they, if they hate me forever. I pray they repent. I, I pray that ultimately the word of God prevails in their hearts and they repent. That's my hope. They could hate me forever. I don't matter. Right, but most of them are just doubling down. Right, absolutely. That they double down. That that they um, that they dig in their position. They stand their ground. And 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 what are they standing their ground for? For, for their bastard grandchildren that are never going to see the kingdom of heaven. You, you know, this life is temporary. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is forever. You want to exchange your reward in the kingdom of God, which is permanent, for the temporary um, feel-good, goody-two-shoes, do-gooder rewards of, of, of this world, which are nothing but vanity. You, you have a, serious, um, a lot of serious reconsidering to do. Right. You know, it, it doesn't matter if they can convince other people in the assembly to accept their bastard offspring or their bastard grandchildren. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. No, no, it doesn't matter. In the long run, it doesn't matter because unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven, period. If he doesn't have that Adamic spirit, if he doesn't have Adamic white genetics, he's a broken cistern. He doesn't have the spirit of God. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into thinking that there's some shady gray ground in between that you could stand on. The word of God is black and white. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. Unless a man is born from above, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Forget it. You're clinging on to something that has no future in forever, according to the word of God. So you're clinging on to something for, for, for whatever um, temporal gratification comes of it, and, and, and you're, you're possibly forfeiting a great re- reward in, in, in the future. And, and that's a shame. That's really a shame. Well, it's their prerogative. Well, well yes, it is their prerogative, but, but it's, it's my obligation to warn them what they're doing and, and what they're risking. And, and that's that, that's I feel obligated to do that because uh, I pretend to know the scripture, right? And you're the become their enemy because you tell them the truth. That's the way it works. That is the way it works. All right. Reference forty-seven. Clay Douglas states Romans eleven thirty-two. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that He may have mercy upon all. Paul of Tarsus. 
Well, well, you know, when we when we see words like this in, in Paul's letters, I, not even in Paul's letters, when we see lines like this anywhere in the Bible, we can't just take this line out of the context of the Bible and apply it the way we want to apply it. It's the word man has to be taken in context, right? Paul, in, in Romans um, chapter 5, Paul equates that word man with Adam and his offspring, his descendants. In Romans chapter 8, Paul does likewise. And, and, and Paul explains in Romans that as in Adam, all, all men are made sinners, so in Christ all men will be forgiven and, and, and glorified. Paul is telling us that he's only talking about the Adamic race, the white race. It could be proven through history and archaeology that the entire Adamic race was originally white. When you study who those people were, the Bible tells us who those people were in Genesis chapter 10. You don't find at that time any non-white people. They were all white. And even though some of them became non-white, later in history, like the Egyptians and, and, and the Ethiopians and the Persians, we know from our earliest historical records that all of these people were originally white, and the Bible explains why they're not white anymore. And, and their own history admits that. If you look at the official name of Egypt today, it's called the Arab Republic of Egypt. Well, well the word Arab is a Hebrew word that means mixed. Uh, I mean, it's written all over their faces. It, it's, it's, it's plain to see in history that these nations became non-white for, for, for reasons of mixing with other races, and, and we see the consequences. But that doesn't mean that Paul's talking about them because those men are bastards, they're broken cisterns, they're not the original people that were there. Paul's talking about Adam, not about anybody else. And as he states, as in Adam, all, Adam, all men sin, well, well right, it, it's that 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 grace that Adam fell from caused Yahweh to give up the Adamic race, and, and, and Paul explains that in Acts chapter 17, and he chose one line out of that race to continue his work in the world, and, and that was the line of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but which most white people descend from today. The word of God doesn't fail, and Paul's talking about in Romans 8, those men who were foreknown and predestinated. He's not, you can't take this word man out of that context. You can't do it. And the Old Testament prophets agree with Paul. Amos 3.2, where Yahweh says of Israel, you only have I known of all, of all the families of the earth. Paul says in Romans that... Um, that Israel was foreknown and Israel was predestinated and that all Israel shall be saved. He doesn't talk about anybody else. That The grafting in of the olive tree is an entire matter entirely, but the Romans, it could be proven, were Trojans in ancient history, and the Trojans came from the Israelites. 
The only reason why they had to be grafted in to the olive tree is because they were descended from Israelites who departed from the main body of Israel before the law and the covenants at Mount Sinai. That's why the Romans were wild olives being grafted into a cultivated olive tree. What the universalists miss is that all these people are olives. There aren't any grapes or figs or thorns being grafted into the olive tree. Well, they have a, a universalist worldview, so they need to make it a universalist message. Well, well, right, but Paul's epistle to the Romans proves, Romans chapter 4, Paul defines Abraham and says that Abraham but was accounted righteous because he believed God when God told him his sin, that, that his seed, his descendants, would become many nations. And Paul declares that they are the nations whom he is sent to minister the gospel of Christ to, to that seed through Jacob Israel, which was promised to become many nations. So Paul, when Paul says all men, in the context of his, of his epistle, he is only talking about all Israelite men. In the context of his epistle, he is only talking about the Adamic race, and it's narrowed to the children of Israel, because it's the children of Israel who were to inherit the earth. It's the children of Israel who were to inherit the nations. And if we understand ancient history and the world at the time of Christ, and we understand that, yes, there are some Japhethites around, that there are some of the other peoples of the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations around, there's no doubt they could all be, for the most part, identified. However, the people that dominated the world at the time of Christ, in the East were the Persians, and in, 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 I'm sorry, were the Parthians, the Parthians are to be distinguished from the Persians, and the East were the Parthians, that they ruled over the Persians at this time, okay? They became the, the tribe that gained the hegemony east of the Euphrates and ruled over Persia at this time. So in the East we had the Parthians, in the North we had the Scythians and the Germanic tribes, and in the West we had Rome and the Romans and the Parthians... The, the, the Scythians and, and Germanic tribes which derived from them, and the Romans all descended from dispersions of the children of Israel. The Israelites at this time, at the time of Christ, the seed of Abraham had already inherited the known world, the Adamic world. They had already inherited the Adamic world. They had already come to the hegemony over all of the other Genesis 10 nations. It was already done by the time of Christ. They just didn't know it. They still don't know it today. Now, now today, we are the heirs of that civilization, and of course, we're being overrun with the other races, and, and that's the subject of many of the prophecies. But which Israelite, getting back to Romans 11.32, which Douglas states here, which Israelite, male or female, can claim to have never been disobedient in any way. We've all been disobedient. We've all been disobedient to God. We've all sinned. He who does not, he, he who denies that he sinned, that he has sinned, makes God a liar. 
I'm paraphrasing John in his first epistle. So, so Paul is right. God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. Because we have to realize that we can't justify ourselves. That's, the, that, that's one of the primary lessons of this life and, and, and Scripture and, and having the law of God and the rituals in our history. As Paul said to the Galatians, the, um, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. From the law, we should have realized that men can't justify themselves, that, that we can't, we should be humble that because we should know that we can't do good all the time, that we can't do good by our own hands. Well, Bill, if I recall, the standard line from the Paul Bashers, Graeber represented it when he said we are captains of our own destiny. So the implication then is that we can justify ourselves. If, if someone sincerely believes that man is captain of his own destiny, then he believes in justification by self. Absolutely, and, and that's the whole thing about rituals. In rituals, men seek to justify themselves. You, you could go to a Baptist church and get baptized and feel good about it, and, and you think that you, you, um, you saved yourself by, by performing these, these rituals, and, and now you're accountable to another man who baptized you, right? But, but you think that you did it, you think you did something to earn your salvation. You can't do nothing to earn your salvation. All Israel shall be saved. We all have salvation. And because we all have salvation, as Paul explained, we should seek a reward in the kingdom of heaven. That is what we strive for. We strive for a reward in the kingdom of heaven. We strive not to be left without reward in the kingdom of heaven, but we'll all be saved. There's no doubt. And, and people think I'm taking scriptures out of context. I, I heard um, that this one clown, that these two buffoons talking last week, uh, I'm not going to mention their names anymore. I heard these two buffoons talking last week, and, and buffoon number one said to buffoon number two that... that um, all Israel being saved means that all 12 tribes will still exist at the end times. That's but that's not what the scripture says. He just made that up himself. What the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 45 is that all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The seed are not merely um, descendants of the 12 tribes, partic you know, particular descendants of the 12 tribes. Now, now, of course, that same buffoon also said in the same breath that there would only be 144,000 of those people in, in the city of God. And, and that's also a misrepresentation of Scripture because he forgot to read the rest of Revelation chapter 7. It oh, talks yeah. about 144,000, but then after that it talks about the innumerable multitude who have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. Well, that, that innumerable multitude is also Israel because the Lamb and his blood are only for Israel. So oh. he forgot to read about the innumerable multitude. Is this the same buffoon that 
would say only 144,000 white people can be saved, but all the non-whites could go back where they came from? Yes. Basically. Yes, that's his theology. So now he's a Jehovah's It's Christ. absolutely lunatic. It's crazy. And it's absolutely anti-biblical and anti-Christian. Well, it's also sophistry to say all 12 tribes are saved, because if I'm not mistaken... Ephraim and Dan are explicitly not mentioned in the Revelation. Some people say Ephraim is covered under Joseph, but there's no indication of what happens to Dan. They're just not there. Well, well, right, and there's historical reasons for that. We can't take the sealing of the tribes, we cannot take out of its historical context. It's very clear in Revelation chapter 6 that... that um, what we have the destruction of Rome, which is about to happen... And then it's held back. The four winds of heaven are held back. The angels are held back. And it's, they're held back for a period of time during which the tribes can be sealed. And then in Revelation chapter 8, we have the ongoing description of the destruction that's to come upon the empire. Because Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 8 are describing the fall of Rome. So in the middle of that, that there's a pause, and these angels and, and these events are, are withheld for a time while the tribes could be sealed. So we can't remove the, seal, the sealing of the tribes from the context of the fall of Rome. These things happened in the past, and, and I believe that the sealing, of the, the sealing of the tribes simply represents an assurance that all the tribes of Israel that, that are involved in this what would survive. Now, it's my contention that the tribe of Dan, even though there were members of the tribe of Dan within the bounds of the empire at the time, and there certainly were, it's my contention that, many, that a great deal of them were outside of the bounds of the empire, in Scandinavia and in Ireland, where Rome didn't rule. And I think that that was done purposely by God so that we would go looking for the historical clues, so that we would try to, to find out this puzzle. That, that's, that, that's my belief. Of course, I can't prove it. It is basically what I presented in my Revelation commentary. But getting back to Paul's epistle, what we see that all Israelites are sinners, it's elsewhere in Scripture, it's in James, it's in John, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the Psalms. We have all been consigned to sin because our ancient parents sold themselves into sin. It's explicitly stated about the children of Israel that they sold themselves into sin. They sold themselves for nothing into sin. Therefore, they would be redeemed without money right, by the blood of Christ. Well, all Israel was consigned to sin. In the context of Paul's epistle, he's talking about all Israelite men. He's not talking about the other races. He's not talking about non-Israelites. Clayton Douglas does not understand the context of the scripture, so he's never, never going to understand the, the reason of sin, the causes of sin, and, and the reason and, and mystery of, of redemption. It, it's that simple. You can't be a Bible critic if you don't understand the story. It's going to be really easy for you to take things out of context and, and treat them loosely and throw them around and scoff at them. That's the way it is.
All right, reference 48. Bill, shall we? Yes. Clay Douglas states, in stark contrast to Paul's teaching of salvation by faith apart from behavioral manifestations, Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 27 states unequivocally that the mere profession of accepting him is not enough, but that such a profession must be backed up by deeds. So why in the world do Christians everywhere make the absurd claim that entry into heaven is absolutely guaranteed by anyone, and I mean anyone, just verbalizing that they've accepted Jesus as their Savior? How could Paul or anyone convince us of this blasphemous humanistic nonsense? Wait, he, he, uh, okay, I'll read the rest before I, I comment, but it's good. This question is a moot point. After all, the bottom line is everyone has indeed accepted the sleight of hand sorcery, correct? And he's talking about humanism, but if I'm not mistaken, he's basically quoting what, what um, John Shelby Spong, God is dead, theism is dead, there's no point in talking about God and salvation. He's quoted Jewish magicians, he's quoted rabbis, he's quoted every secular authority he could find, and now he wants to talk about humanism. Right, and, and John Spong, if you remember, was voted Humanist of the Year for 1998, I believe it was. So he, he's an acceptable source. So th that is so like a Jew. He calls you a communist, and then he goes on to quote six communists to make his case. Absolutely. It, it's, you, you know, this is one of the most, it, it's one of the most misunderstood um, concepts in Paul and and it it's it shouldn't be too hard to elucidate plainly, but I, I don't know if people would still get it. In Paul's world, you had nothing but white people, nothing but people that we would consider white, people that um so certain buffoons would insist are white, right? You had nothing but white people, but there was a problem. Apparently, white people, I should say, there was a problem. While most of them were wheat, Israelites, um, other Adamic peoples like the Elamites and, and the Ionians, the, the Japhethites, that the, um, while most of them were wheat, a lot of them were tares. A lot of them were Canaanites. A lot of them were Edomites, descended from, from the ancient accursed people of Scripture. Now, in a world, in Paul's world, in a world where everybody is white, and where only God, or apparently white, right? And where only God could tell the wheat from the tares. Remember the apostles marveled about how Christ didn't need anybody's report concerning the nature of men, for he knew what was in them. That's what John says. I'm paraphrasing again, but that's what John says in his gospel. And the apostles marveled that Christ could tell the wheat from the tares, because they couldn't. Josephus, if you read the historian Josephus, he talks about the Edomites all the time. But he really couldn't tell them apart. He, he actually found good and talked very well about Herod. The, the, the most evil bastard in antiquity, he actually talked good about him. Now, in a world where 
all things being equal and, and everybody being apparently white, the gospel, the gospel of Christ was to be the divider between the wheat and the tares. So Paul told his people, the people that were listening to him, that all you had to do was profess Christ and you would be saved. Why would he tell them that? He would tell them that knowing that the tares couldn't profess Christ. They didn't have it in them. They were the scoffers. They were the rebukers. They were the doubters. It took the Jews a couple of hundred years before they realized that they could do a hell of a lot more damage by pretending to be sheep and infiltrating Christianity. It really did. They weren't pretending to be Christians in the first century. They weren't professing Christ vainly in the first century. They stood steadfastly against Christ in the first century. The, the tares. The, the gospel was the divider between the wheat and the tares. Basically, that's what Paul's telling these people, that if you accept Christ, then you'll be saved. Well, why? Because you're a child of God, because you're a child of Adam, because you're an Israelite. That's why, because that was the litmus test. That's the litmus test we were told we were going to have. Now, today, today the world's a lot more complex. Today we have white people who, who, who are mixed with every other race, what we have all these other races amongst us, you can't go to a hot and tot and tell them that if you accept Jesus, you'll be saved because salvation is not for the hot and tot. Salvation is only for the children of Israel. It's a different world today. It's a much more complex world today. People take these things out of the historical context. They no longer apply. Because history has changed the nature of the oikumene. The oikumene, the Adamic world, it's not even an Adamic world anymore. And there are some people who don't want it to be. This advice worked in Paul's time. It doesn't work now. Well, I... Paul, was talking to, Paul was talking to nothing but apparently white people. He wasn't talking to Hottentots and pygmies and Hutus and Tutsis and Eskimos and, and squat monsters from South America. Well, I think fundamentally, even before we get into the race angle on the, this, the, this Paul Bashan article, these people, they hate the sovereignty of God and they hate predestination. They think that man is the captain of his own destiny, man can affect his own salvation, man can checkmate God. And at the end of the day, they just string the argument along, adding one point, one point, one point, another point, and then they get you to the end, and they tell you that basically there's no point in God, man is, man is his own God. That's ultimately where this leads. This leads to atheism, this Paul bashing paper. Now, Paul did not teach that people only needed faith. Paul, James, James said that faith without works is dead, and he's right. But James saw faith and, and works differently than Paul sees them. And Paul believed that because you had faith, you would do good works. And he constantly told men that they should do good works based upon their faith, that they should live 
basically, I, I could summarize it by saying that they should live for their fellow Christians and their, and their Christian communities and dedicate themselves to that Christian and, and community and to their fellow Christians because they had faith. Faith led to good works. James saw them as, as basically um, integral components where Paul saw them as, as, as very... Um, he saw them differently. James saw faith and, and works. Faith without works is dead, as integral to one another, but, but as separate components, imagining that you could have faith without works. That's philosophical. That's a philosophical difference. That's how James saw it. Right. Where so, Paul, Paul understood that if you had faith, the works would follow suit. And he saw it as one he insisted over and over again. He said in, 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 um, in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Um, I'm quoting the King James Version of the Bible. In 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 10, but which becometh women professing godliness. Let, let, let me back up a little bit. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, expensive clothing, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. A woman shouldn't adorn herself in expensive clothes and jewelry, she should adorn herself with good works, is what he's saying. And if I'm not mistaken, it's in Second Peter, I think, somewhere. Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fail. I'm sorry, fall. Well, well, right, but we make our calling and election sure. We make it sure by living and dedicating ourselves to our fellow Christians, to our Christian communities, to our kin. Right. That, that's, you know, Christ gave over his life on behalf of us. We, and, and says, if anybody wants to follow me, he should pick up his, if anyone what wants to come behind me should pick up his cross and follow me, meaning that we should do what he did. We don't have to necessarily um, die on a cross for our kin. We can't, we can't um, improve on what Christ did, but we should dedicate. He gave his life for, for his white brethren. We should dedicate our lives to our white brethren, to our white communities. To, to their benefit, to their edu to their edification. That's that that's how a Christian should live his life. They're the good works that Paul's talking about over and over again, and telling us that we 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 to show that um, we're firm in the faith that we should dedicate ourselves to these things and do these good works. Well, if somebody claims to have faith, they articulate a, a belief. They say, I have faith, and then they proceed to pillage, rape, loot, rob, steal, cheat, and swindle. It would call into question whether or not they actually have the faith they're claiming. Well, well right. I, I mean, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? It, it's people, we, we can all be sinners, but if we're going to be true Christians, if we seek 
that heavenly reward, we are going to live each day seeking not things for ourselves, but how we could make things better for our kin, our community, and our brethren. Right, and there's no sacramental point system. I've done these eight things this month, so I'm four steps closer to the kingdom. Well, well, no, you're getting into the kingdom. That's what that, that's what the scoffers don't understand. You're getting into the kingdom, so so you he who exalts himself will be humbled. Yet you don't do good works so that you could pin stars to your chest. You do good works because you love your God and your brother. That's why you do good works. You don't vaunt yourself about it. What did Christ say about the Pharisees? That they pray on, on the street corners to be admired by men, so that they, so, and, and therefore he says, they already have their reward. So if you want to do good works in this life and boast about it in this life, put up plaques. The Jews love that, right? The Jews love to donate lots of money and put plaques up that they want their names on a hospital, they want their names on a museum, they want their names on a library. Well, they already have their reward. You give your alms in secret, and your father will reward you publicly. So when you do good works, you don't brag about it. You don't advertise it. You don't say, oh, look, I did this for him, and I did that for her. You don't do that. You don't have that point system. Forget that. You don't do that. Otherwise, you get no reward in heaven. We're told that explicitly by, by, in the words of Christ himself. So, so Paul taught over and over again. It's throughout Titus. It's, throughout, it's in Hebrews. It's in Timothy. It's in Ephesians that we should do good works because we have faith. Now, Douglas takes the line out about having um, faith in professing Christ and you'll be saved, and, and he takes that out of the biblical context because all Israel was saved, and in Paul's time, the tares would never, the tares could not profess Christ in Paul's time. So that, the, the application of Paul's statement works, it works in Paul's time. It don't work in our time. It don't work in our time because we've wrongly taught these animals, these beasts, that they could be saved. And that's wrong because the covenants don't apply to them. Forget it. We've taken the covenants and we've taken the, we've taken the blood of our Savior and we've made it common. Paul tells us in Hebrews that there's a punishment for that for making common the blood of our Savior. In other words, we can't share his redemption with other peoples. We can't do it. The gospel is only for the children of Israel. Even if we wanted to, we can't. We can't take something that was offered exclusively to us and make it available to other people. Well, of course not. Well, we can. I mean, we're, we're doing that right now with universalism, but it just means there's going to be a lot of disappointment amongst the universalists. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When their pet Negroes aren't in the kingdom. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ foresaw universalism. He foresaw universalism in the, in, in the parable of the gnat. The kingdom of heaven is like a gnat. 
but when cast into the sea, pulls up every kind of fish. And that word kind is genos, and it means race. It pulls up every kind of fish, and the good ones are taken and gathered into vessels. But the bad ones are thrown into the fire. They're not even thrown back into the sea. They're thrown into the fire. The goats, the tares, the bad fish, they're all the same. Well, when the, when the wheat and tares are taken out of the field, the wheat is kept in a barn, the tares aren't discovered to be tares and planted back in the field. They're thrown in the furnace. That seems awfully hateful. It's exterminationism. Yahweh's an exterminationist. Doesn't God know he's supposed to be a universalist? Well, well, you know, all of the devices of the Paul Bashers fail upon an honest investigation of Scripture. They all fail. The Paul Bashers' real issue is with Christianity itself and not with Paul. And, and that should be fully evident throughout this paper. And this should be no surprise, since we've seen that Graeber and Douglas rely on a host of Jews, Antichrists, Socialists. W.G. Finlay, he's another Paul Basher. He relies on Jews and, and, and Communists in order to make his case. Anti-Paulism is a stepping stone for, Paul, for the Paul Bashers so that they could really destroy Christianity. Divide and conquer the last true remnants, remnants of true Christendom. Well, their their um, objective is to dismantle the Bible, dismantle Christianity systematically, and they're attacking Paul as step one. Are we on to reference forty nine now? Yes, 49A. All right, and this is from the next Watchman Teachings letter. Clay Douglas states, Did you know that cocky Paul made the decision to throw out the laws handed down to Moses through God? Did you know that? Does anyone really care? Romans three nineteen through 21, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the words may become guilt all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So now he's referring to him as cocky Paul, and he poses the question, Did you know that? Does anyone really care? Well, how can you know something that's not true? Well well first First, that word without means outside of, right? Right. Outside of the law. Well, it says in Revelation, for, for without are sorcerers, dogs, etc. It means they're outside. Right. That, that Greek word means outside of. The, the, um, what we've seen is Paul certainly didn't throw out. He couldn't throw out the law. He didn't throw out the laws handed down to Moses. Israel violated the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant came with the Levitical laws. So the nation, which is the wife, the wife of Yahweh, was freed 
from the law of the Old Covenant when Yahweh himself, incarnated as Joshua Christ, died on the cross. And, and Paul explains that in, in Romans chapter 7, and he explains how that happens. But that's supported, that's supported by the Old Testament. It's supported by the prophecy of Christ in Daniel chapter 9. That there's passages in Daniel chapter 9 that very few Christian identity writers understand properly. I'm reading, uh, I'm looking for this passage because it's basically um, impromptu, right? Right. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. This is the prophecy of Christ in Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Why? To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. Now, and, and it goes on and says, and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's a prophecy of Christ. This entire 70 weeks prophecy is a prophecy, it's a messianic prophecy of Yahshua Christ. So we see why he came, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. And Paul explains that sin is violation of the law, and without the law, there is no sin. And then Paul goes on to explain, blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute sin. And that is promised of the children of Israel. Because Yahweh promised in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, that he would cleanse us of all our sins. Now, sin is violation of the law. We Christians, we ancient Israelites, our ancestors were under the law. Our ancestors were bound to the law. They were the wife of Yahweh. Exodus chapter 19 is a wedding ceremony. The children of Israel vowed to agree and, and follow the law as part of their prenuptial agreement. They were bound to the law when they married God when the nation of Israel became the bride of Yahweh. Now, the nation committed fornication and God put them off. The whole nation is liable to death, the punishment for adultery. The punishment under the law for adultery is death. But Yahweh, on account of the promises to the fathers, promised that the nation would live. Yahweh God is in a dilemma. He made himself. Israel has to live because of his promises. He foresaw all this. However, Israel has to die under the judgments of the law. This is what Paul struggled to explain to people that didn't know this scripture, that should have known it, but they didn't know it. This is what he's explaining in the epistle to the Romans. The only way that Israel could live is if the husband dies. So that the wife is no longer 
liable to the law of the husband. That's what Paul's explaining in Revelation chapter 7. So Yahweh chooses, chooses to come incarnated as his own son and die on the cross, fulfilling the law, releasing the children of Israel from the law. Now Paul says that because we're released from the law, do we sin? Of course not. We as Christians should see this history of our ancestors and should seek to establish the law which Yahweh wrote in our hearts under the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31. If you love me, Christ says, keep my commandments. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins. Now, can you say that from the time of Christ, nobody sinned? Or can you say that from the time of Christ, the children of Israel are still the same old screw-ups they've ever been, but because of the mercy of God, they're no longer going to be judged under the law? That's what you could say. We still screw up. We screw up all the time. But the transgression was made an end of. Because by the mercy of God, he chose to die on our behalf so that we would be freed from the law of the husband. We still sin. We sin all the time. But we're no longer held accountable for it because the husband died. We're no longer under that law. Very simple. And therefore, righteousness of the children of Israel is everlasting and to bring in everlasting righteousness. All Israel will be saved. What we have to realize is that because we're going to be saved, we should seek all the more to comply with Yahweh our God. We should seek all the more to do good because we want that reward, because we don't want to wake up. Some of our brethren are going to be saved, but they ain't going to like it because they wake up to everlasting reproach. Daniel chapter 12. We don't want to be screw-ups to that extent. We want to seek to do good. We want to seek to comply with our Creator. Because we're going to live forever, because we are children of God, we are Elohim, and we are going to live forever. Forever is a long time to live with everlasting disgrace. But I thought John Spong said theism's dead, so how can we live forever if John Spong said theism is dead? Well, well, right. That's the bottom line is that the Paul Bashers don't understand their Bibles, and they're basically anti-God. Because they can't, that they don't have the racial key, they can't figure out why these scriptures seem to conflict with one another. Once you have the racial key, there's no conflict at all. All the conflict evaporates once you understand the history and have the key, which is race.
So Paul didn't throw out the law. Paul advised Christians to establish that law because they had that salvation. And that's what Christians should seek to do. All right, 49B. Clay Douglas states, I know, I know, some have used Esu's message in Mark 3.28 to reaffirm that even murderers are guaranteed a passport to heaven, right? Here it is. Truly I say to you all, sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Esu Emmanuel. So here we are. I guess they, they've switched writers now. It's back to Esu and Esu Emmanuel. <laughs> it seems to be that way, doesn't it? It's been shown here already that all the sins committed by any of the children of Israel, and no one else, no one else matters, are forgiven by Yahweh. That's what we're told. And that's the words of Christ. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And and I, I actually get criticized by the buffoons, the, the Catholic wing of Christian identity. I think it's headquartered in Chicago, right? And it has its, its biggest satellite on the outskirts of Atlanta. That's where the Catholic wing of Christian identity is. The, the people that want to throw that they're supposedly fellow Israelites into the lake of fire. Jeremiah, Yahweh says in Jeremiah that he will cleanse us of all our sins which we have sinned against him. There are no exceptions to that promise. Christ says in the gospel that all sins will be forgiven to sons of men. That's what he says. He's only echoing Jeremiah, his own word, because he is Yahweh incarnate. He's echoing Jeremiah. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Paul clearly taught that we must not sin more simply because our sins are forgiven. He says that explicitly. It's one of the themes in Romans chapter 3. Well, it's one of the themes in the Gospels. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Right, very good. He also taught that those who learn the truths of Christianity and then fall away again have no second repentance, which he states explicitly in, 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 um, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Didn't he say that it would be better if they'd never heard the message to begin with? Right. He also says that even Israelite men, although forgiven, although we're forgiven and we understand we have that forgiveness, we still have to answer for our sins in judgment. That determines our reward. 1 Timothy 5.24. He says that some men send their sins ahead to the judgment. They're the men that repented. They're the men that repented and they're forgiven and, and they live confidently with the, um, the, the fact that those sins are forgiven because they repented and, and, and because they are truly um, repentant and sorrowful and, and won't do those things again. Other men, that their sins follow after, meaning that 
they don't repent of their sins in this life, and, and they have to face Christ with those sins on the table. That's, that, that's the way it is. That's 1 Timothy 5.24. Paul says there's no room in the kingdom of heaven for murderers and other sinners. And he says that in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, in Galatians 5, in Ephesians 5, in 1 Timothy 1. That means that we have to put all those things behind us. We have to repent of all that bad behavior because we're not taking that behavior to the kingdom of heaven. Clayton Douglas wants to take um, one line from Paul out of context and run with it and and condemn Paul for that line where where he doesn't pay attention to everything else that Paul says concerning sin, concerning bad behavior, concerning... um, Paul Paul gives entire lists of of, of things that we have to cease from. Fornication, adultery murder, covetousness, lasciviousness. There's there's entire lists in those chapters. Galatians chapter 5 is a good example. Romans 129 to 132 is another. So so Douglas is um, just making another ad hominem attack based on an extraction of one line of scripture taken out of context. It, it's the, the Paul bashers are, um, it, it's they, they get away with this because most people obviously don't read the Bible, right? Right, and there's no low these Paul bashers won't stoop to. Absolutely not. If they'll engage in ad hominems and they'll quote communist magicians and talk about sorcery and they'll invent fiction, Judah is Karyoth and whatnot. Uh, if, they'll, if, they'll, if they're, if they're, if they're going to write a novel, what won't they do? What, what, what's next? Right. Forty-nine C. Clay Douglas states, but wait one moment. Understand the meaning of blasphemies. Blasphemies, as defined, means this: contempt or indignity offered to God. Contempt offered to God. Root word: blame. Clearly, if you show contempt to God by disobeying His laws, you are censored by Jesus and His Father because of your eternal sin. Just remember, Esu's most important proclamation. So he, he wants to talk about the root word of blasphemy and look at it then in the English. He doesn't want to take it back to the Latin or the Greek. He just wants to open up Webster's and that's it, so he's a linguist now. He's making himself a linguist, right. The word blasphemy was not derived from the word blame, right? The, the English word blame was derived from the word blasphemy. That's the truth. And, and that's according to the dictionary, right? So So Douglas gets... Even the simplest etymology backwards. The English words blaspheme and blasphemy and, and ultimately blame come from a group of Greek words, the chief of which means a profane speech, defamation, evil speaking, slander, impious and irreverent speech toward God. That's what blasphemy is. Douglas perverts the language and then he distorts the meaning of what he's, what's being said at Mark 3.28, right? He adds things to it which it simply does not imply. And then he concludes by quoting Matthew, where it says, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we've basically come full circle. It should already be evident here, and, and in many ways, that Paul did not teach the abolition of the law and the prophets, 
Paul taught the fulfillment of those things, and their fulfillment was in Yahshua Christ. The, the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin that can't be forgiven, and that's because the spirit of holiness, the spirit of sanctity, is the spirit of the separation of the children of Israel. That's what it is. Now, the Holy Spirit is also a facet of Yahweh God, but he commands the children of Israel to be holy as he is holy. That word holy means set apart and dedicated for the purposes of God. That is what the children of Israel were commanded to be. When you blaspheme that Holy Spirit, you're advocating the violation of that state of being set apart and dedicated for the purposes of God. When you encourage the children of Israel to race mix, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's how I see that. When the children of Israel race mix, while the fornicator himself can be forgiven, and that's explicit in Scripture, the bastard children can't ever be accepted. So therefore, it's the unforgivable sin because the children can't be accepted. They can't be forgiven. They're soiled. They're broken cisterns. They're ruined vessels. Well, they're broken cisterns. I'm sorry. How do you get use out of a broken cistern? Can you repair it? No, it can't be repaired. And that's what we, that's the theme of Jeremiah chapter 2. Well, Douglas and these clowns, they should know all of this, shouldn't they? So well, 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 they should know it. Yeah, yeah. If they're gonna com- if they're if they're going to be Bible commentators, yes, they should know it. If you don't know these things, you shouldn't be a Bible commentator. It's that simple. I'm not saying they should know it, as in we would expect they go out and learn this and read it. I'm saying they should know it, and I'm, what I mean to say is, we can assume they do indeed know these things, and they're not writing out of ignorance. They're writing out of malice. So it's not just that they're ignorant and they're they're taking shots in the dark. They know exactly what they're writing. You know, it'd be like reading Isaiah and stopping at the part where it says, and each man shall return to his own land or flee to his own land, and then you stop right there and you don't read the next part. Right. That's that's incredibly dishonest. (laughs) Right. So that's what I'm saying. These people are not ignorant. They're dishonest. Well, Well, it seems to be. Uh, it it really does seem to be, but but if your end game is is actually to destroy Christianity, you don't care what you're dishonest about. John Spong, I mean, this author of Douglas's papers here is quoting John Spong um, pretty liberally earlier on in the paper, and and pretty proudly. And John Spong, well, we we um, elucidated what he was all about. And he clearly sought and, and vocally, advertently sought to destroy Christianity and to pervert it and to corrupt it into some kind of um, neo-humanist, homosexual-loving perversion. It, it's incredible. All right. Reference 50? Yes. Douglas states, we Christians claim that God is a loving God. 
Why then would a loving God allow his own son to be killed as a ransom for a bunch of very evil people? This is all part of the myth. Okay, so now he doubts the crucifixion, and it's all just a myth. So what did I say? He was just going to take out a Christianity point by point, brick by brick, attack this point, this point, this point, and you're left with nothing, humanism, atheism. But to continue, this is all part of the myth. The perpetuation of the myth continues to make us blind. Why is it so difficult to tell it like it is? Very evil, bloodthirsty Edomites pushed to have Esu Emmanuel tortured and slaughtered. Esu did not want to die. It was not meant for him to die. The Romans at the prodding of the Jewish Pharisees murdered Jesus Christ. He is dead to us. All the while, we try to keep his, keep his true teachings alive. So he, only a Sadducee could say he is dead to us. And only a Jew could say that he didn't mean to die and that he didn't want to die, but he was powerless to save himself. That just sounds like the Jews. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Well, well, absolutely. This has this this totally exposes them as having no um, true knowledge, understanding, or faith in simple, basic Christian concepts. If Jesus didn't want to die, a legion of angels would have come down, or he would have come off the cross. Well, well, right from the beginning. Well, well. 700, 800 years before he was born, it was prophesied that he was going to die. Maybe a thousand years if we go back to, to the prophecies in the Psalms of David. <laughs> the, um, the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The, that, that's the sacrificial Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What Well, the, the function of the lamb at sacrifice time was to remit sin. Right. But I'm particularly disturbed by the idea he is dead to us. Only a Sadducee, somebody who believes in no afterlife and believes in no soul, no spirit world, only a Sadducee could write those words. Well, well absolutely. And, and I'm sorry, I'm sneezing and coughing and I have no mute button on this headset. And, and I just can't get to it in time. I, I can't get to the jack in time sometimes to pull it out. All right. But the um, <clears throat> it's very clear that um, that that this is the, the this is the attitude which the Sadducees had. No belief in an afterlife. No belief in the eternal spirit. And certainly no belief in the resurrection. Right. And they also whoever wrote this. If he were around 2,000 years ago at the crucifixion, he'd be screaming at Jesus, pull yourself off the cross, come down from there. Absolutely. If you're God, pull yourself off the cross and save yourself. Right. He wasn't there to save himself. No, no he was there to die, and that's explained all through the Gospels and, and, and in very many of the Messianic prophecies. And even if he did, you know, they said, pull yourself off the cross, come down from there, and then we'll believe in you. He wasn't there to make them believe. He wasn't interested in what they believe in. Right in that prophecy, that messianic prophecy I, I, I just quoted from in Daniel, it says very explicitly that the Messiah was going to be cut off and not for himself. And so what? Even if he does come off the cross, when the Jews say come off the cross and we'll believe you, what they mean is come off the cross and we'll find some new reason to insult you. Well, <laughs> basically, because... Um, well, Christ in, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that the end of the parable, it, it was even if one were to return from the dead, you still would not believe him. Right. 
said that you had the law and the prophets and you did not hearken to them, you did not believe them. To continue, why are we being misled by the deception that he died for our sins? The reality is Jesus Christ was murdered, period. The interjection of the hoax myth that he died for our sins allows us for, missing word, his mistake, probably the word to, conveniently forget the circumstances behind his horrible torture and eventual death by hanging. So now he was hanged to death? So that we can then celebrate the murder all the while while we sin and repent and sin and repent falsely thinking we've still got a free ride into the kingdom. What a trick they've turned. Do you really want to end up short on Judgment Day? Isn't that the important question? Is this a gamble you're willing to take? How can we forgive ourselves? How could God forgive us? Well, how can there be a judgment? Jesus Christ is dead to us, so where's the judgment? If God is dead, who judges us? This is sophistry, and it's not even internally consistent. You know, most um, diatribes, most dissertations, most articles should be internally consistent. So God is dead to us. He was, he's, he's a powerless God who didn't mean to die, but the, the, the Jews killed him anyway because the Jews are more powerful than God. So they were able to rise up and kill him, even though he didn't want to die. Now he's dead to us, and there's a judgment coming. Well, who's going to judge us? The powerless God who's dead to us and couldn't save himself? This is all a contradiction. Well, well it is all a contradiction. It, it's, you know, 1 John um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's what Paul teaches. It's worded differently, but that's exactly what Paul teaches about our relationship to God and sin. Okay? We shouldn't sin, but if we do sin, we're going to be forgiven through Christ. That's exactly what Paul teaches. John words it very differently. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, the Israelite world, the Israelite society, the Israelite cosmos. That doesn't mean non-Israelite people, not at all. So we see John, did Paul write that epistle? I mean, these basic concepts are enunciated throughout the New Testament. Paul didn't write John. There's absolutely no way you could blame Paul for the epistles of John. They were written 20, 30 years after Paul was dead. It's in every gospel. This idea is expressed in one way or another. And the warnings of Christ that he was going to die and, and be resurrected are through they're recorded in every gospel and and Douglas is basically here has has denounced not Paul but he's denounced the primary the the, the primary foundations of Christianity he's denounced them entirely well the mask has fallen off if it hasn't already well, it, it should have, it's fallen off about 50 times during the series, but the bottom line is that these Paul bashers, they're not Christians to begin with. Right, and he's not concerned with whether or not people wind up short on the judgment day. He's, he makes it seem like he's concerned for our salvation. He's concerned for our well-being, 
No, he just wants to confuse, demoralize, and drive people away by turning Christianity into some sort of humanist claptrap nonsense. Well, well, Clayton Douglas, rejecting these things and, and many others, has fully adopted the positions of the Jews regarding not only Paul, but also regarding Christ and, and regarding the Old Testament prophets. And he's done it repeatedly. So, so Clayton Douglas is basically a Jew. And, and if he's not a Jew by race, he surely is a Jew by his corrupt views of the Bible and of the history of our race. He's a Jew between the years. And he's been played along by Jews. Well, well, here we have finished our address of Clayton Douglas's first Paul Bashing article. The Seduction, I'm not going to repeat the title again, I'm sorry. It seems to me that many in Israel identity have not yet noticed the threat which Paul Bashing has been to the vulnerable of our faith. I call them vulnerable because... As the Apostle Peter warned in his second epistle, those who contend against such scriptures do so at their own peril. A good friend of mine, whom I had once been blessed to have, have, to have exchanged many letters with for several years, and whom once upon a time I had hoped to meet, was Gene Snyder in, in Montana. Now, Clifton Emmerheiser knew Gene Snyder longer, much longer than I had. Gene knew both Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare. She knew them personally. She was involved with them and with Israel Identity for over 40 years. She was, a great, she was of great service to many prisoners and, and other people during those years. On February 1st, 2006 as I was writing these Paul bashing essays for Clifton, I received a letter from Jean, and she read the four Watchmen's teaching letters responding to um, H. Graber. And in the letter she said, what is this about Paul bashing? Now, now here's an old-time Christian identity woman. Uh, she knew Burton Inez Compare personally. She knew Lorraine Swift and introduced me to Lorraine Swift, who, who I knew through correspondence for for several years. She knew them personally. She knew their ministry. She read all of their ministries. Gene Snyder is the one who originally transcribed all of Bertrand Compare's tapes into the book, the, the big fat book, which Mike Hallamore was selling as um, under the title of Your Heritage, I believe. So, so Jean, you know, she knew her scriptures, and, and she was familiar with all of the basic Christian identity teaching of the time. And she said, what is it with this Paul bashing? She, she couldn't understand it. What is this about Paul bashing, she said. He was the main one that spread the gospel to Israel. I'm quoting her letter to me. There wouldn't be much of a New Testament without his letters to the different cities where the Israelites dwelled in their new homes. Gene understood the basic concepts of Christian identity. How easy Israel is still led astray, she said. And she went on to say, I wonder what Wesley and Bert would think about what is going on today. 
Well, well, I would thank Yahweh for people like Jean Snyder. Unfortunately, I never did get to meet her because she passed on in December of that same year, 2006. While she may not be familiar with, while she may not have been familiar with all of the various contentions of the Paul Bashers, she being well grounded in her faith surely wasn't going to fall for such deceit. In stark contrast, and this is I'm, I'm writing, uh, I'm reading my conclusion to this series, in, which I wrote for Clifton. One. Another woman who was involved in Israel identity for a very long time, Judith Nips. Judith Nips, the former wife of James Wickstrom, they were married at one time, Judith Nips purportedly vowed that she would never speak to Clifton M. Heiser again after he began to publish the defense of Paul of Tarsus. So, so that was too... Um, conflicting responses to the Paul bashing series, which, which Clifton and I had presented at that time, well, which we're discussing and covering and, and presenting in this series today. Now, while it is certain that the Celtic, Saxon, and related peoples all descended from the Old Testament Israelites, as did the original Romans and many of the Greek tribes, which can be verified without the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. Jean Snyder was certainly correct in her assessment. The New Testament may be quite obscure to us today without the letters of Paul. Paul brought the gospel to the Greeks, the Romans, and the Celts, and told all of these people time and again that they were indeed the children of Israel. Paul made Christianity historically um, historically I'm looking for a word and, and, and pertinent perhaps to these people. He told the Galatians the law was your schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. He told the Corinthians that their ancestors were baptized in the cloud and in the sea by Moses. The connections of the Galatians and the Corinthians to the ancient Israelites, they can be proven in history outside of Paul's epistles. Paul had to know who he was going to to say those things. Paul was the glue that stuck the Gospels to the children of Israel in their dispersion. There's no doubt, once you understand his epistles. He told all these people time and again that they were indeed the children of Israel. And so they returned to Yahweh and followed Christ, just as the Old Testament prophets said they would. Anyone who would question this as Peter tells us, is unlearned and unstable. That this is the crux. You could have Paul bashers, but to have Paul bashers inside of Christian identity is absolutely ridiculous. It's incredible. Paul bashers should be Jews. They sure as hell shouldn't be identity Christians. They, they, they lack all this understanding. And, and, and therefore... They aren't learned enough to call themselves identity Christians. 
they should stop and, and reflect on these things and relearn their scripture and their history and do it the right way. Do you have any closing remarks? Well, this is a novel. I mean, what more can I add to it? I mean, we could bring in Aquaman, Superman, and Batman, and, you know, um, Batman was going to save Christ from the cross, but he was busy that day, so Christ had to die. I, I mean, that, that, it, it, this is a comic book. This is absurd. It's obscene. and I, I can't imagine how anybody with an IQ of at least room temperature could give much credence to this sort of writing. Well, well, it's unfortunate, but it's been done. It's been done time and time again. You know, these authors have no credibility. Absolutely not. Not when you scratch the surface. Uh, a lot of these arguments might sound good to people who never read the Dead Sea Scrolls. You missed that segment, I'm sorry. That people who, who never really read all of the Old Testament. Most Christians haven't read most of the Old Testament. It's a shame, but it's true even in Christian identity. And, and and so so that they they fall for these tricks, it it makes sense to them, and and they fall for it. That that's a shame, but it happens. So it has to be brought to light. It has to be exposited. It has to be elucidated, and and the record has to be corrected. Well, I think some of these arguments are potentially seductive, but when you take them all together and see that there's no internal consistency in the document that. Paragraph 1 contradicts with paragraph 3 and paragraph 7 and paragraph 8, and here he is quoting humanists. His goal is not to enlighten Christians about a danger posed by Paul. Of course, there is no danger. His goal is to systematically dismantle Christianity and leave it gutted, and that's why he's quoting Sadducees and humanists. No doubt. Right, so I would expect identists to be... uh, made of a, a bit stronger intellectual material. So I, I would think that they should be a cut above the average schmo off the street, so they, they should be a bit immune to this sort of deception. Well, well, yes, they should be. That They absolutely should be, because identity Christians should be Bible-reading Christians. And they should also be history-reading Christians. That There's no doubt. Identity Christians should be immune to this garbage. It's a shame that Many of them aren't. A lot of people hear our message and, and they get the basics and, and they run with it. And when they, when they in turn try to teach it, well, they screw it all up and it doesn't make sense. And, and you know, they're basically the seed that falls into rough ground and it never takes root. And it springs up quickly and when it's challenged, it withers. It's strangled by the, by the weeds, right? I'm paraphrasing one of the parables of Christ, but but basically that's what it boils down to. And in order to be the seed that that falls in the good ground and takes deep root, you have to study. Study to show thyself approved. Right. So next. That takes some effort, right? We will continue then with the Paul Bashers next weekend. Well, well, I'm not sure we'll do it next week. We might do something else, but we'll, we will continue with this Paul Bashing series. And, and let me state that I've challenged the Paul Bashers many times, and, and some of these, some, some of these, not all of them, but, but some of these podcasts, these last 16, ha- have had upwards of 3,000 downloads. They've heard my challenges. Many of them have, have only had a couple of hundred, 
but but many of them have had a thousand, fifteen hundred, three thousand, five hundred. They've heard my challenges. I haven't heard. I have not heard a damn thing from one Paul Basher, from one Paul Basher since I started this series. And Ralph Daigle, I know you're listening. I know that there are Paul Bashers listening to these series. I could go on naming names, and I'll refrain from that. But but I know they're listening. They can't they can't come on here though. They can write an article that contradicts itself from paragraph to paragraph. But if they come on here, we're going to hold their hand to the burner, call them on all the contradictions in front of an audience, and they're going to be humiliated and they won't have an answer. Well, well, I'll tell you what they could do if they had a lick, if they had any backbone, and and they still uphold their Paul bashing. They could send me a short list of points to address, and address them I will. Or we will. The, the most you're going to get is a string of ad hominems, slurs, and diversions, and fantasies. And, and then they'll be exposed for what they are. I'll take it, and I'll publish it on my forum. So I think that the most you'll get out of them is an, an email denouncing you as a killer and a convict. And you Well, know, well that's, all they, that's all they have to fall back on. That, that's all the universalists in identity can do to me it is make ad hominem attacks against my background. They can't talk to me on, 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 on the level of Scripture. So, no way can the universalists in Christian identity debate Scripture with me. No way can the Paul Bashers do it either. It would be particularly rich, though, if I were to condemn you for being a prisoner while I have a prison ministry. Right. And th- th- that's the standard fare of the Paul Bashers. They would resort to things like that. Well, well the, the, the Universalists have, have um, condemned me for, for being a Nazi when they're, they're seen on video at NSM rallies. So <laughs> there's no end to their hypocrisy. Thank you for joining me tonight. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I'll be here Friday with Acts chapter 2. All right. Good night. Good night.
looking for a white wedding. Thank you. 